Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Carrie Bringhurst, sitting in for host Tom Williams. And on August 26th of 1920, the 19th Amendment was passed. Women were no longer barred from voting because of gender. During today's program, we're going to preview an event happening tomorrow where they'll be celebrating the anniversary and honoring the people past and present who fight for voting rights. Our guests are Whitney Lee, an autistic disability rights and mental health advocate, and Alina Begay, who's program coordinator for Indigenous student programs for Utah State University's Inclusion Center. The event will be hosted by Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage 2020. It will begin tomorrow evening at 6.30 on the historic Cash County Courthouse steps, where they will be encouraging social distancing and asking you to wear masks. We're going to be talking more about the historic milestones for Women's Equality Day and discussing the ongoing fight for voting rights. And let me first begin by welcoming Alina Begay, who is Program Coordinator for Indigenous Student Programs for USU's Inclusion Center. Good morning, Alina. Good morning. Thank you for having me on here. Thank you for taking the time to be with us here for Access Utah. And um, celebrations happening all over the state and, in fact, nationwide to recognize that uh, the 19th Amendment passed 100 years ago here in the United States. And as the program coordinator for Indigenous students, um, what does that what does that necessarily mean for you and those that you represent in your program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so uh, I I advise the Native students and also the Polynesian students. And so um, just being a part of this and just making sure that the student voices and their votes matter um, in this election, as you may well know, uh, Gen Z and the millennial vote are one of the biggest groups for voting for this year. <laughs> and so um, just making sure that we provide those resources to those students um, so that they can have their voice be heard, particularly the Native students, um, because um, some of them might not have the resources to vote. Um, their families, a lot of them might be living on the reservation, so there are some um, barriers that they have to have to go through. Um, with COVID happening, not all of our students are going to be um, per in person in Logan. We have online options, and so those barriers might be a problem for them being back on the reservation. Yeah, we've heard a lot about the, the impacts of COVID-19 on um, the Native American community, and, you know, as part of your responsibility, I guess you have a, a student council that works with yeah. Native American students. How are they doing? They're doing good. Um, I think, you know, with COVID happening, everything stopped so suddenly. So everyone just went home <laughs> right away. And so they're just trying to get back into the zone of being back at school for those who are able to come back and just um, forming their leadership group um, and eventually reaching out to those other students um, from that leadership group. So. Are there any specific efforts being made by the student council to, again, help educate um, their their peers on the importance of participating in elections? Um, not as of yet, because school hasn't started yet. It starts um, August 31st. So um, that was one of the things as their advisor and as for my Indigenous programs, I was wanting to highlight the vote, especially here in Logan. It can be <clears throat> a little difficult to navigate. Um, and so just trying to help them with the voting process, how to fill, 
fill out a voter registration form, the deadlines for that for them. Um, yeah. Yeah, it can be a challenge, can't it? Um, you know, as mm-hmm. you don't have um, a great way to communicate. I know we're, we're seeing that across the board. Uh, before they left, how much of a conversation was this as we're heading into a presidential election about ways to, I don't know, engage with with their peers and helping them understand Mm -hmm. and how to overcome, like you said, the challenges of not having access to information, Uh, maybe not being able Mm -hmm. to reach the polls or participate in um, political conversations. Was, was that something that was talked about or discussed on a regular basis by your students? Yeah. And I think it's talked in more of a broader spectrum because obviously a lot of the policies and things affect native country um, and affect these Native students' communities, and so they're always, you know, very aware of all of the different laws and things that are passed by the current administration right now, and so their voice, they feel, is very important um, to make sure that they put in that vote, and also sharing it with their younger siblings and sharing it with their families, um, because a lot of the times they're the ones that are out here, you know, learning different ways, and then they go back home and they help their families. Do you have a sense of what issues they're concerned about as, as uh, they participate in, in voting? Mm-hmm. I think number one is ma- making sure that our, our sovereignty is maintained. Um, I can sound a little biased, but <laughs> uh, this president has definitely enacted laws that try to threaten our sovereignty and to actually take away the tribal sovereignty rights of different Um, nations in the United States. And so anytime that that had happened, the Native students, and including myself, um, want to make sure that our voice is heard and that our ways of life and these laws that are enacted and given to us because of the genocide that occurred to our people is still um, upheld. And that means like education, um, being provided health care, and making sure that our lands are still our land. And and you feel like the younger population is is kind of tuned in into those needs as well? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Anytime that had happened this past year or previous years, um, they would come to me. And even in their student clubs, they would be talking about it so, and discussing ways that they can they can make a change. We've, we've touched lightly on some of the challenges uh, that can make it difficult for um, Native American, Indigenous individuals to have access to voting, but I don't know if we've talked in detail about that. Do you have any personal experiences that um, you can share from your situation or maybe stories that you've heard from some of the students about how it might be difficult for them or some of their family members to have access to the vote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's there's a lot of stories, um, but uh, one in particular I can think of is, you know, their grandparent might not have a birth certificate because they, their grandparent, you know, grew up in a traditional way. They were born in a Hogan. They weren't born in a hospital. And so, and their grandparent only speaks Navajo. And so that grandparent is going to have a difficult time trying to get a birth certificate and also a driver's license. Um, and there's an added barrier, like I said before, they only speak Navajo. And so either their grandkids have to be there or somebody has to be there to interpret for them. 
And so um, there's those barriers. And there's also, you know, barriers of students saying how they have to drive really far away to either get to their P.O. box or they have to drive a really long way to get to a polling place um, to vote. And sometimes that might not be an option. It might be the option of, you know, I only have enough money to go get groceries for this month. I don't have enough, you know, gas money, $40 to go to place a vote. That's going to be like 100 miles away from me. So those are some of the stories that I hear from mm-hmm. these students and even from my family, mm-hmm. myself too. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, but um, my family is from uh, the reservation two hours north of Albuquerque. Okay. So uh, some of the areas we're hearing about, um, you know, uh, struggling to be able to have access to the vote, as you mentioned, because maybe they don't have the proper ID or there could be those language mm-hmm. barriers and the, the distance is an issue. So that, that, those are some of the challenges in just getting to the, the um, actual places where you do the voting. What about challenges yeah. as far as having access to information about the candidates and, and who you might want to vote for? Um, is that a challenge as well? Oh, yeah, definitely, especially for the older generation, because most of them only speak Navajo, and so they don't have you know, there's no translations <laughs> in Navajo other than their family members that can translate things for them. Um, another thing that just reminded me is, like, when you live on the reservation, and this includes, um, you know, those who are on the reservation here in Utah, you may not have a physical address, and so that can affect the mail-in vote. Um, some of them are requiring that you have to have a physical address and not a P.O. box. Um, and so those are some of the factors that affect the native vote and why the native vote tends to be a little bit lower than most demographics. Mm. You don't see a lot of um, political candidates focusing on the Native American vote as you do maybe mm-hmm. some other populations throughout the nation. Why do you think that is? Um, I'm not sure. I My opinion is I think they don't think of it <laughs> as a as a big you know, factor of changing their vote. Um, I think Bernie Sanders was probably the, the biggest candidate um, that focused on Native vote. And this year, they actually had a convention. Um, oh, I forget what the name of the convention was, but it, they had candidates going to it, um, and it was specifically for Native voters. And there's also a resource. Um, it's nativevote.org. And um, it offers a lot of resources for Native people, and it explains different things like what is an absentee ballot, um, different voting requirements for each state, and kind of just goes in depth as to what these terms mean. So what are some of the solutions or suggestions you and others have been working on to maybe resolve some of these issues? And what can we do as communities to help address Mm -hmm. these problems? Yeah, I think just talking to your friends, talking to your students, talking to your family, um, and discussing these barriers that are happening, um, and obviously trying to to put those plans into action 
earlier <laughs> rather than the day of because, you know, even for the mail-in votes, you have to do it 30 days before or in person. You have to drop it off 15 days before. So really having those discussions right now um, with everybody. Um, I think one of the plans that I want to do is just having some uh, voter registration um, pamphlets printed out and being able to give to students. Um, and then I know always they have um, voter registration on campus. So that's always great to see when that occurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think we're all a little more aware of the challenges of doing the mail-in voting, considering that because of COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, most of the the voting will be happening that way. Um, Do you see that as maybe one of the benefits of of what is happening to make the rest of uh, society understand the challenges that can come with having to think ahead and, and getting that ballot in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think there are definite benefits for having mail-in voting. And obviously here in Logan, uh, we've been doing it for quite a while, <laughs> you know. And so I've seen that it's had positive outcomes for just doing a mail-in vote. Um, I personally haven't had any hiccups myself for that. Um, yeah. So as as we, you know, head head into the elections and head into these celebrations, I mean, we are celebrating again tomorrow uh, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which um, allowed for all women to be able to vote and not to be barred because of their gender. When you hear about voting rights celebrations and um, access to the vote, um, there there's this tendency by some of us to think it's you know the the battle is over. Uh, the the victory has has been known. How 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 do you feel? What is your response when we we talk about um, these celebrations and maybe some of us not really realizing that voting rights are are still not available to some in our in our nation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I hear you know it was given to all women for the Nineteenth Amendment, it really wasn't given to all women, specifically Native women. Um, because the laws were enacted where it was up to the states to decide if Native people were allowed to vote. And Utah was actually one of the last states in the United States that actually allowed Native people to vote. And that date was just barely 1962. And so it's kind of shocking (laughs) that we as Native women and Native people were not allowed and given that vote until just, what, 60 or 50 years ago. Yeah, so. not 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 that long ago. Yeah. No. So will you be celebrating these anniversaries? Will you be celebrating tomorrow? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, celebrating, but also um, bringing awareness that, um, you know, that the Native people's voice and the Native people that we did not get those voting rights until later on, and just highlighting how important it is to have everyone's voice at the table, especially for today's election, to enact change in this country. So it's okay to to celebrate the past, but we need to be thinking about the future and maybe those additional um, rights being offered to everyone. Oh, yes. And then also learning from the past, learning that um, we can change things now um, to include everybody. Well, and I think it's uh, also been part of the conversations I'm hearing that just because um, there are the legal um, constitutional changes that make those those rights available, as we as we've been hearing from you, um, there are some practical mm-hmm. components that can still make it a challenge 
for individuals to be able to vote and participate in, in that process. Yes. We've been talking to Alina Begay, who's Program Coordinator for Indigenous Student Programs for Utah State University's Inclusion Center. We've been discussing some of the celebrations surrounding voting rights for women and um, the need for access to voting rights for Native American students and other Indigenous communities. And we want to continue our conversation. We're going to be bringing in Whitney Lee, who's an autistic disability rights and mental health advocate. But first, we want to take a quick break. You're listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Extension, providing tips for food preservation, including dehydration, pressure canning, and freezing. Information can be found at canning.usu.edu. Did you know that character could be the most important factor in predicting a happy marriage? For decades, family science researchers believed success in marriage to be the result of outward skills, such as communication. But what if our character traits naturally lead to those skills? Researchers surveyed more than 1,500 married people in Arkansas, Utah, and Vermont. They were asked to evaluate their partner's character and rate their own marital happiness. Those with open-minded, respectful, and modest partners were significantly happier. As we build our character by practicing compassionate and gentle interactions with our loved ones, our relationships can become more healthy and happy. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Welcome back to Access Utah. I'm Carrie Bringhurst sitting in for your regular host, Tom Williams. And today we're discussing voting rights and the celebrations of the 19th Amendment, which was passed 100 years ago tomorrow. There are several events happening throughout the state of Utah to help celebrate these historic events, including one tomorrow evening at the historic Cache County Courthouse on the steps where they will be uh, practicing social distancing and encouraging you to wear a mask. And they're going to be talking about uh, Women's Equality Day and uh, discussing the ongoing fight for voting rights. We've been talking with Alina Begay, who's Program Coordinator for Indigenous Student Programs for USU's Inclusion Center. We're going to continue a a couple of uh, conversations with her, and then we're going to be um, welcoming Whitney Lee, who's an autistic disability rights and mental health advocate, to discuss some of the uh, challenges faced by those with disabilities in being able to access the vote. But first, Alina, before we let you go... um, Can we talk about some of the laws and practices that either fail to consider or disregard or um, intentionally may target Native American voters? As you mentioned, Utah was one of the last states to offer on-reservation voting rights. But are are there specific laws? Are there actual um, decisions being made by lawmakers that you feel are, are making it difficult for Native Americans to access the vote? Um, yeah, I've had heard some uh, some talkings about the kind of landing area where they had some issues with voting. <laughs> um, I, I don't know the full details of it, but I can I had kind of heard from my students um, about um, that 
it was difficult to get a native vote, and that dealt with the zoning, you know, the availability for native people to go and vote, um, and it was it was an issue because the population of native people in that area was very high, but they've never had a native representative for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it had always been someone who was non-native, and so it didn't really make sense how um, the voting was happening. <laughs> so the, this was in San Juan. This is in San Juan County, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so um, I wish I had more resources for you, but I do know that that was one of the voting issues that had happened recently in Utah. And as you mentioned earlier, um, some of the challenges can be not actually having identification. And, and again, those laws mm-hmm. are being made on a state or countywide level. So you not only have your work cut out for you as far as um, what's happening on the national scene, but also really needing to have um, really a sense of what's happening locally in state and local government as well regarding voting rights? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. And also, you know, we do have the the barrier of not all of our students having Internet access um, that are on the reservation. And that was particularly an issue we had um, when classes went to online. And so a lot of them had to go to the statewide campuses um, across the state and use the Internet outside of the building in their cars to just get their homework done. And so, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of barriers mm-hmm. <laughs> for, in, for Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, Bernie Sanders when he was a candidate for president. I remember um, him incorporating a, a lot of nature, specifically birds, in his comments and um, that resonating very well with the indigenous population. Um, how important is it for, say, an elected official to to um, relate or resonate with the indigenous communities in, in their policy, but also in their personality, if trying to encourage that vote? Yeah, I think it's very important. Um, obviously, we have a very strong connection to land. Our culture is connected to the land. Our language is connected to the land. And so making sure and ensuring that our um, tribal lands and also the lands across, you know, the whole United States, as we call Turtle Island, is what we call it, um, is being preserved and being taken care of. Um, and so I, Bernie Sanders was one of those candidates who was very active in his um his alliance with that of um, believing in climate change <laughs> and also um, protecting the earth. And, and I so will... That's why I feel like a lot of Native... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I believe that's why a lot of Natives um, connected with him. Right, right. And I would be interested for any of our listeners um, who maybe live in the San Juan County area um, who might have more information about what is happening um, with voting rights and the indigenous Native American communities there, if things are improving. Um, I I don't have the information in front of me, but it seems like there were some changes in the works, but it um, might be interested if we have a caller that might have more information or would like to respond on our Facebook page. Well, Alina, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us um, this morning, and um, good luck in your advocacy as, as again, you celebrate... Um, the voting rights that have happened in the past and also 
uh, work toward, especially with those students, working toward helping them understand the importance of voting and overcoming some of these these obstacles. So, Alina, thank you so much for, for joining us here on Access Utah today. Thank you so much. And Alina Begay is Program Coordinator for Indigenous Student Programs for USU's Inclusion Center, um, joining us today to talk about um, the voting rights and what have happened in the past as far as voting rights and what are some of the challenges still facing us today when it comes to access to voting and participating in the political process. I'm sitting in for Tom Williams today. I'm Carrie Bringhurst, and we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, um, we'll be speaking with Whitney Lee. Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to present the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. And this artist contest celebrates the beauty of this interdependence and connectedness. From now until September 4th, we'll be accepting submissions and then you'll get to vote on your favorite design. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for anyone to view and download. For more details, go to upr.org. And to submit, just send your submissions to katie.swain at usu.edu. Celebrate nature and art. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, and this week on The Splendid Table, we're talking things you gotta try. From dunking your Oreos in red wine to the African supergrain Fonio, it's delicious stuff you may have never thought of, heard of, or dreamt of. Plus, I try my best to convince everyone to make a ratatouille recipe that will literally take you all day. That's all coming up on The Splendid Table. Beginning Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Welcome back to Access U Time. Carrie Bringhurst sitting in for your regular host, Tom Williams. And this morning we're talking about voting rights. Uh, 1870, 1920, 1965, and 2020. A number of events to help celebrate voting rights that uh, have been allowed here in the United States. But many feel that more needs to be done to allow access to more of our residents and their voting rights are being stripped in so many ways. One of our guests today is Whitney Lee, who works with autistic and those with uh, autistic disability to help reserve their rights, as well as mental health advocacy. And uh, Whitney, we appreciate you joining us this morning. Welcome to Access Utah. Thanks for having me. And where are you calling us from this morning? I am from Syracuse, Utah. Okay, so you're here in the state of Utah. Um, I understand you're founder of the Grassroots Autistic Advocacy Group, Neurodiverse Utah. And um, I would assume as part of that, uh, you are very involved with state policy. Um, Yeah, so we kind of just started getting going um, with Neurodiverse Utah um, and learning about some state policies, especially around voting and making sure that um, understanding part of, like, being new, we're trying to understand some of the laws around voting and how it impacts disabled people and kind of um, there's a lot of laws that do actually disenfranchise disabled people within the state. So, Whitney, what what has prompted you to take on um, this this role, this opportunity of, of helping advocate for those with disabilities when it comes to voting rights? So I am 
disabled myself. I am autistic. I deal with a lot of mental health problems. I also deal with a lot of chronic illness. And um, one of the things, especially with the whole controversy around mail-in voting is, for me, mail-in voting has been a huge asset dealing with chronic illness and knowing that lines are kind of standing in line is kind of a problem, like there's kind of just overstimulating, and when you're chronically ill, you don't have as much energy. Um, then also being able to remember all the candidates and remember all the issues, whereas like with mail-in voting, um, at least the form that Utah has, you have your all your information right there. You have all the names and the issues that you can kind of just do, brush up on your research while you're filling in your ballot. Mm. So personal experience and then feeling empathetic towards those in my community is what prompted me. Hmm. So what are some of the other stories you're hearing from maybe um, your peers or those you, you represent um, as far as challenges of, of being able to participate in the vote? One of the biggest problems coming from the autistic and mental health community are those who are under guardianship is in the state of Utah. If you, you are put under guardianship, or otherwise deemed mentally incompetent, it is automatically assumed that you cannot vote and you have to prove that you are able to vote under guardianship. And so this this kind of, you know, disenfranchises a large part of the population that deals with severe mental illness or deals with um, intellectual disabilities and even our older Adults, as they start dealing with like um, things like um, Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, and and just to give some background information, and I'll I'll do a bit of disclosure here. I I do have a, a child with disabilities, and one of um one of the requirements here in the state of Utah is once they turn eighteen, if they're not able to make decisions on their own, you actually have to go before a judge, and um, then they will deem you um the individual that kind of cares for their needs, but also makes some of these important decisions. And as you mentioned, that that can strip away some individuals' rights to vote. And I don't know if a lot of us understand how that works or um, that it even exists, but as you mentioned, that, that can be frustrating to a number of individuals who um, are interested in and want to have that right. Yeah, because like, a lot of times with, like, you know, guardianship, the point is to help you with your safety and your health needs and, you know, even financial needs, which are really complicated, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with voting. But out of this kind of paranoia of voter fraud, um, they just assume you can't vote, and so you have to prove you can vote under guardianship. I am still looking into how that works. Mm-hmm. This is something I've even learned recently because, and it's not talked about mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And and that, do you feel, is even more of an issue for maybe those who are diagnosed with a mental health issue, that um, there's this assumption that they might not have the comprehension to vote, or is that a, a wrong assumption on my part? Um, I think it's more of a problem for those with intellectual disabilities, they're, um, that they can't vote. And part of this is a lot of the information about candidates and policy is not made accessible. The language is um, complicated. Um, they, don't, they avoid using plain language. And so 
And then even those with, like, severe mental illness, sometimes when you're in a severe mental health crisis, you do struggle making health decisions for yourself, and that's why there's guardianship or conservative, you know, for someone with mental illness. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't vote. Mm-hmm. What about, um, I know this is not going to be so much of an issue now, but um, transportation, I know, can be a challenge for those with disabilities and actually being able to um, access information about candidates, but then to actually get out and and do the voting. You hear that people will sometimes um, provide transportation services. Even candidates will sometimes provide transportation services to make sure that members of a community have access to um, voting. Has that um, improved, do you think, with online information and access, for example, um, to conventions like the Democratic and Republican convention all being online and then having the mail-in ballot uh, be able to um, allow for individuals that may not have access to transportation that might be homebound to participate in the voting process? Are we seeing any improvements in that area? Um, I think especially in the state of Utah, how their mail-in voting system works, it has been a a lot better improvement um, because you are able to have your ballot and look at the, you know, you at least know who's running and know the issues so that way you can go on to the computer and access the information. There still is, like, a thing where, you know, when I was first kind of, learning, getting into the vote, I didn't know quite how to access that information, but um, kind of teaching, I, there needs to be more education, but um, Utah, the state of Utah's government website does make it easy for you to access who is running within your district and at least get, and it links you up to their websites and their bios if they have them. So that has been really helpful. So especially within the state of Utah, I think we do have a good system, but there could be more improvement. For example, if you're homeless and you don't have like a hard address, a lot of disabled people, like most homeless people are disabled, whether it be with mental illness or traumatic brain injury, or if you're living rural, like um, earlier, you know, they mentioned the problem with like not having a hard physical address and you're living really remotely. Um, you do have problems with being able to, you you don't have access to the mail and vote, and oftentimes when you're disabled, traveling, especially long-distance traveling, is not feasible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of talk about concerns um, over voter fraud and how that relates to mail-in voting. Um, Do you personally or um, those you associate with in your in your um, work worry that, that that's a possibility that voter fraud will increase because of the number of mail-in ballots that that are going to be presented this year as part of elections? I personally am not concerned about it. I have seen from, like, the state of Utah has been using kind of the mail-in system for the past 10 years, and there's been, like, um, I think at least five or more other states that have been doing it, and they have not had any significant voter fraud. 
Um, I think there is a bigger problem with people, with citizens losing access to the vote because of paranoia over voter fraud than actual voter fraud. Hmm. Um, I'm reading um, information from the Pew organization that, that does, you know, cite some concerns. You mentioned those with Alzheimer's, um, maybe who are living in assisted living or um, other facilities that there might be concerns that maybe staff members are filling out or influencing ballots um, for those with maybe a severe cognitive issues. Um, how, how do we address those concerns? Uh, you know, do we need kind of a, a standard, a, a federal standard on on how um, those individuals should or should not be allowed to vote? I think one of the things I've seen in regards is if someone is conscious um, and, you know, they're able to, like, they, you know, they should be able to fill out their ballot. Um, there are a lot of technologies that could make filling out ballots more accessible, such as like, um, you know, eye tracking devices or, you know, electronic ballots, like where you fill them out online and then they're printed and mailed in. Um, I do understand that the concern, especially for someone like when you, that is older or having memory problems or, you know, those who are nonverbal, like, but as technology is improving, I think there's more ways to make voting more accessible to those with memory issues and communication issues. Mm-hmm. Do you think we here in the state of Utah um, are, are doing better or worse than the rest of the nation um, as far as allowing those with uh, mental or physical um, disabilities to have access to the vote? Um, it is a little complicated in in the our mail-in system. I feel like in some ways we do better than other areas because our mail-in system, our absentee voting is very easy. Like when you register to vote, you basically I can ask for a mail-in ballot every election, and so you don't have to worry about thinking about it every election cycle, and you don't have to have really complicated. Um, like some states, it's really complicated to get an absentee ballot, and with people with like autism or ADHD, your ability to prioritize mm. tasks becomes more difficult. So in that regards, we are doing better, but we are one of the many states that automatically assumes for those under guardianship, assumes they can't vote. And so... Mm. Um, well, and according to this Pew information, there's an estimated one and a half million adults under legal guardianship nationwide, and um, but no indication of how many have lost their right to vote. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I think from like the Pew and um, NPR, there's only 11 states that don't strip voting rights automatically if you're put under guardianship. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we, we get back, Whitney, um, we want to talk a little bit more about what you're going to be doing to advocate as the many celebrations are taking place um, regarding voting rights. Um, we'll return with Whitney after this quick break. You're listening to Access Utah. 
I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. And now also heard Friday mornings at 11 here on UPR. In times of uncertainty, conversation can be a sustaining light. I'm Helga Davis, and on my show, I have inspiring conversations with people you may recognize, like the host of On Being, Krista Tippett, and Grammy Award-winning bassist, Esperanza Spalding. Join me for a special broadcast of Helga. Join us for this five-part series, Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Tomorrow will mark the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment passage, which allowed women to vote and not be barred because of gender. There are a number of celebrations that have been happening and will happen as a result of voting rights celebrations, including USU's Year of the Woman with many different uh, ways of celebrating, including the USU History Department Speaker Series, which will begin in September to discuss voting rights of 1870, 1920, 1965, and 2020. And uh, there will be symposiums that are taking place online. Utah Public Radio has more information about those symposiums again beginning next month. Also, some other ways that um, people are celebrating, groups and organizations celebrating, the National Endowment for the Arts, um, we'll be working with the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art for a new uh, feature, Women, Surrealism and Abstraction, featuring 46 artists, including Native American women artists who are rarely shown on topics of surrealism and abstraction. And that um, opens this week on the campus at Utah State University. And tomorrow night, one of the larger events happening in northern Utah will be a celebration on the Cache County Courthouse steps, and that begins at 6.30 tomorrow evening, and that will include speakers as well as presentations and then um, a theater showing of uh, women's rights and some of the women who participated in those voting rights will happen at the Utah Theater beginning tomorrow night. And joining me to discuss the rights of those with disabilities, including mental health and physical or emotional disabilities, is Whitney Lee. She's an autistic disability rights and mental health advocate and also founder of the Grassroots Autistic Advocacy Group, Neurodiverse Utah, and you assist in helping with state policy, but you also enjoy animals and fantasy writing. Whitney, does any of your fantasy writing, fantasy writing include... Um, the fantasy of better access for individuals with disabilities to voting rights. Um, I haven't really like gone into the democracy of like you know high fantasy, but I do. Out of the main heroine is disabled and kind of um, reshaping what it means to be disabled. Um, you know, because a lot of um, People, like, I kind of subscribe to the social model of disability, and that's kind of what I use in the book, is that um, that really the problem more lies with how society is built and that we tend to exclude disabled people in our building of society 
rather. And so it's not necessarily something is wrong with the person that is disabled, but more that um, society is excluding. And this kind of comes down to, like, voting, like, you know, the first law to really kind of include disabled people in voting was the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which means that all federally funded buildings had to be made accessible to disabled people. And so before that, any polling places, if you had a disability that, you know, you know, if you were a wheelchair user and all the buildings, all the polling places near you had stairs, you couldn't vote. And so you know, for a long time, and then still in many ways, disabled people are not allowed to vote depending on the disability. And not just because of access, but maybe perception and some of the other issues we've we've talked about, um, having their rights literally taken from them to be yeah. allowed to vote. So when you um, hear of these celebrations, like we're recognizing um, the opportunity for women to be able to participate in the vote, um, do you have um, a tendency to want to say, wait, uh, more is needed? Yeah, it's great that women and others have the right to vote, but um, uh, the, there's still more that needs to be done? Um, as a woman and, you know, someone who, you know, is, you know, voting is still pretty accessible to me. I am excited and I do celebrate the women's right to vote, but, you know, being involved in disability rights advocacy, I really like one of the things is voting rights history is very complicated like technically yes all women had the right to vote but disabled people weren't included in that design and so i do want people to be aware that it took till like the 1970s to 1980s for um people that were physically disabled to be partially included, and even still, the enforcement of those laws relies, there isn't an enforcement, it's more based on, like, your ability to sue. That's how, like, and so there is still a lot of issues, and then also even, like, you know, people under guardianship being stripped of the right to vote, and then also if most people that are, you know, in prison are disabled as well, and if you're a felon, you can't vote, and so there is that as well. Mm, so you've touched on um, those who may be homeless, um, that having a big impact on them, and now bringing in the, the justice system of, as far as not allowing individuals to vote. Um, I'll ask you the, the same question um, that I asked uh, regarding the Native American population. Why don't we see more candidates um, working to maybe encourage the vote uh, of these, say, for example, one and a half million adults who are under legal guardianship nationwide. That's a huge number. Um, why wouldn't they want to seek out the vote of those individuals? Um, I don't know. I, I would say disabled issues have been kind of overlooked by a lot of different activist groups. I think there are a lot of... Um, misconceptions out there. It, this is the first, like, election I have seen where disabled people were actually acknowledged um, by presidential candidates like Bernie Sanders and um, Andrew Yang, and then, you know, finally even, like, Joe Biden. But before that, I haven't seen any, like, candidates acknowledge, like, or trying to 
um, target, like, you know, win the vote of, like, disabled people. So um, is your group, do you have conversations about that and, and how you might influence that change? Um, so one of the things we're doing with my group is both on the Facebook page and within the group is um, sharing access to, like, being able to register to vote online and also information to, like, you know, candidate information um, that is in plain language and, you know, trying to encourage people to vote. Not, and, you know, not really telling them how to vote. We're non nonpartisan, but, like, you know, that their voice is important. We're kind of modeled after the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, which is a national organization that really pushes for um, changes in these things like, you know, winning, um, encouraging rights to vote for people that are under guardianship or, you know, in the criminal justice system or are homeless. Hmm. How do you go about, um, if, if you're interested in helping with your advocacy or um, maybe you're an individual who has faced some of these challenges, what's, what's the best way to get involved? I think one of the best ways to get involved is to kind of first, like, um, follow some of, like, the groups, um, like the Autistic Self-Advocacy um, Network, and then if we can get more people involved in my group, the Neurodiverse Utah Facebook group and um, page, we're trying to get more people, like, to kind of network and um, work with other organizations. Um, for individuals, my recommendations are to write to your senators and representatives um, about these issues that concern you. Um, it could be, you know, write, call, email, do whatever is easiest for you. That's kind of how um, ASAN works. And like ASAN works, we, we when we go to do on campaigns, um, we'll have drafts for emails because that you can use to send to representatives because oftentimes coming up with that email may be difficult. So, mm. Good idea. Um, we're seeing more and more of our social media and technology um, hopefully helping with the advancement of um, encouraging and allowing for more participation in our voting rights. And sounds like you have your work cut out for you, um, Whitney. We wish you all the best as, as you work toward helping um, individuals, especially those within your community and part of our society who may not have access because of a diagnosis of mental health or some form of disability. And, and good luck in your work and your efforts. And enjoy celebrations this week. Well, thanks. Uh, we appreciate you taking time to be with us. Whitney Lee is an autistic disability rights and mental health advocate and joining us this morning here on Access Utah to talk about voting rights um, past and present and um, in some cases hopes for the future to allow access to more voting rights. And uh, if you are, would like more information about some of these um, programs that are being offered, we'll have that available for you on our website 
I do want to make a couple of notes of events that are happening as part of these celebrations. Again, tomorrow night at the county courthouse on the old um, historic county courthouse steps, there will be a celebration that begins at 6.30. Also, uh, tomorrow, Jan Hayworth's women's mural is being unveiled in Salt Lake City. Um, That will be included in the mural are many women that um, we're celebrating here in the state of Utah for their work, including Utah State University's first female president, Noelle Cockett, will be featured in um, that painting as well. So a number of celebration, Better Days 2020 is one resource for that information. Also, we have information on different celebrations and events that are happening, including Utah State University's Voting Rights Symposium and who the speakers and guests will be for that. So if you would like more information about what is happening to celebrate the Year of the Woman and voting rights, we have the details on our website at upr.org. And Tom Williams will be back tomorrow hosting Access Utah for you. It's been a pleasure sitting in for him today to talk about this important topic. And, of course, you can always share your comments um, on UPR's Facebook page and through our email. Thanks again for joining us here on Utah Public Radio. And stay with us. Coming up during the next hour, it's Radio Lab. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, a man dies in a U.S. immigration detention camp under unusual circumstances. It literally happened right after his death. His death was on May 20th, and probably early June is when we started getting letters. Part one of our two-part investigation into the strange death of Jose de Jesus. That's this week on Latino USA. Coming up this morning at 11 here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.